Good evening. I'm Carol Doherty. I'm the director of the Newhouse Center for Humanities here at Wellesley, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. Um, I think we've got a great evening in store for us, a sort of behind-the-scenes glimpse at um, what's perhaps more often the unsung uh, process of editing um, with uh, New Yorker fiction editor Deborah Treisman and two of her writers, Alexander Heyman and Hilton Alls. As many of you know, Hilton has uh, been in residence this year at the New House as the New House visiting professor of creative writing, and I really owe this whole evening to him. <laughs> He's put the whole thing together. Uh -oh. So let me say a few words about Hilton, and then I'll uh, to introduce him, and then I'll hand things over, um, and he can take it from there. Hilton Ells became staff writer at the New Yorker in October 1994 and theater critic in 2002. He's also written articles for The Village Voice, The New York Re Review of Books, and was editor-at-large at Vibe. He has uh, received a Guggenheim for creative writing in 2000 and the Georgie Nathan Award for Dramatic Criticism in 2002-03. Hilton is the author of two books, The Women in 1996 and Justin Bond, Jackie Curtis in 2010 and is currently, as I said, the Newhouse Visiting Professor of Creative Writing at, uh, at the Newhouse Center at Wellesley. So um, I'm going to let him take it from here, and thank you all very much. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for coming. And one of the best things I heard um, standing out in the hall just now was a group of students coming in, and they saw Deborah um, from the side and they said, oh, she's so young. So there's great hope um, for, for all of you students who aspire to, her, to greatness. Um, I want to thank Carol Doherty and Jane Jackson for being so welcoming this semester at the Newhouse Center and for taking care of so many eccentrics who are passionate about their projects. These stalwart women make sure the lunatics are not running the asylum. <laughs> In addition, I want to extend my gratitude and warmth to the poet and professor Dan Chasen, who introduced me to the wonderful students and professor at this great institution. Without Carol and Dan and Jane, I wouldn't stand before you now, immensely humbled by your company and the guests we have this evening, New Yorker fiction and fact editor Deborah Treisman and the novelist, short story writer, and nonfiction writer Alexander or Sasha Heyman. We're in the company of two great artists who also happen to be at the top of their field and whose interests, the peculiarity of being, is reflective in their work. As the editor behind writers ranging from Heman to Alice Munro to David Foster Wallace, Deborah's great strength is in hearing what the author hasn't written and encouraging the poetry of it. Born in England in 1970, she has lived variously in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Berkeley, California. She has edited the landmark collection 20 Under 40 and is the host of the invaluable New Yorker Fiction podcast. In addition to all this, she is the mother of two girls named Natalia and Imogen, whom I like very much, and who are about to be stars in their own right. I won't give you too much of her biography just now because that's part of the conversation. But after she joined the New Yorker in, what year was it? 1997. 1997. It was clear. I had a TK there, and I forgot to ask her. It was clear that Deborah um, embodied what was fantastic about the magazine, honoring the subject and the written word while bringing in a sense of the new and the newly possible. 
And one of the writers Deborah nurtures and who writes with a terrific sense of the possible is the incomparable Alexander Heyman. Born in Sarajevo in 1964, Mr. Heyman emigrated to the United States by chance in 1992. I'll have him explain what that sentence during the conversation. He is the author of four fantastic books, justly acclaimed, the novels Nowhere Man, 2002, and The Lazarus Project, 2008, and the stories, story collections The Question of Bruno and Other Stories, 2000, Love and, Other, and, Love and Obstacles, 2009. He is the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Foundation grant, among other honors. Tonight, we'll talk to Deborah about her little-known but deeply crucial role as editor, and to Alexander about writing, fact, and fiction. And I'm so happy to be with them, and please, let's welcome them. Okay. <laughs> To begin at the beginning, this is a very, very strange, almost sort of emotionally pornographic evening for me <laughs> because Deborah and I almost never discuss what we're doing. I don't know if this is your experience, but um, it actually mirrors very deeply how I began writing, which was I would show my mother what I was writing, but I, I would leave it on the dining room table. She would write her comments. I would pick up her comments the next day, and then we would never discuss it, which is exactly what happens with Deborah. Um, so I'm going to make a theatrical event out of a fairly intimate and um, personal one. So you'll just have to bear with us while we sort of look at each other quizzically and say, I never thought, I never knew you felt that way. Um, <laughs> so here's the first question, and it's for Deborah. Um, I say, I say. <laughs> <laughs> Um, writing of his 50-year editing relationship with the great um, late architectural historian Jane Jacobs, the legendary editor Jacob Epstein once said that editing has to be about candor in a way that friendship cannot generally take, meaning we never tell our friends the whole truth, but editors have to. Deborah, how do you maintain the balance between intimacy and candor, particularly with those writers you've worked with over a long period of time, like myself? <laughs> um, well, you know, it's complete avoidance, as you know. <laughs> yeah, well. um, uh, honesty and uh, candor and, and... He said that um, friendship can't bear the candor that you yeah, have to have as yeah. an editor. Um, it's true, it, it, but the, the, the way I think about editing is not that it's about telling someone they've done a bad job or you know, you failed, sorry, it sucks. Right. Um, it's, it's really about seeing what, where they've succeeded, where the writer has succeeded, and trying to um, pull that out, bring it to the surface, and, and make it encompass the whole piece. So it, for me, it's never, it, it's, sometimes it's a matter of saying, you didn't, hey, you didn't tell us this, or you haven't written about this, or where's that, or I'm missing this. But it's never a matter of, of just saying, well, occasionally it's a matter of saying start all over, but it's yeah. rarely a matter of saying that. It's usually a matter of saying here is what's working. Yes. And um, I mean, I'm thinking of, of you and, and our relationship and, and editing nonfiction specifically. Um, it's a, it's you sort of look at a piece that is in early stages in draft and think about what it could be, think about what it's trying to be, think about what the what the writer has seized upon as a central thing. 
which may not be the central thing in the actual execution of it, mm -hmm. and then trying to pull that out and structure, restructure a piece around that. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it, I, I think, is just deeply intuitive, um, which is, it, it's an interesting, editing is an interesting thing because um, although it helps to be smart to be able to do it, it's, it, it, there are brilliant people out there who have no idea how to edit. And um, I, I notice this by watching people I work with or assistants I hire who um, might be fantastic readers. And then they sit down and are confronted with a piece and have no idea what to do with it. And somebody else who maybe I didn't think was so promising can sit down and suddenly say, oh, well, here's what you do. You put this there, and you take that, you add a piece here, and you do that. And they, they, it's just very instinctive. I'm, I'm not sure where it comes from. Um, could it have anything, anything to do with the fact uh, that empathy is such a great part of it and putting yourself in the mind of the writer, in the soul, really? Well, um, I think it, it's, this is going to sound very um, paradoxical when I say this, but I think that the, the best sign of a good editor is to be completely egoless. Um, and I'm really good at being egoless. <laughs> I'm the best ego, anti-egotist in town. No, it's, it's just, a, yes, it's a matter of not trying to impose oneself on a piece. It's a matter of becoming the writer in a sense, to the mm -hmm. extent that you can, and, and seeing what he or she can do, and, um, and, and really hearing the voice. And that's that not trying to impose your own voice on something, mm -hmm. and, but trying to make that voice louder. Mm -hmm. I remember, um, Sasha, I don't know if you've had this experience of getting a little note from her that can actually make you burst out laughing, because she finds the thing that you're writing before you do. I was writing a piece about Catherine Ann Porter, and I thought I was being so completely brilliant to point out that Eudora Welty had been influenced by her. And in 1963, Eudora Welty had written a story that was, in, that was about the South. But anyway, Catherine Ann Porter comes later, and I went on and on and on and on. And Deborah sent me a note back saying, I thought I was reading a piece about Eudora Welty. And so <laughs> I realized it had to go. Have you had? those sort of moments of illumination with Deborah through humor or sadness? <laughs> I think there was sadness. Um, <laughs> yet, it might be around the corner. But um, I, I don't know how, whether the way she works with me is the same as she works with someone else. I mean, I have no frame of reference. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't really even recognize the way in a sense. Yes. To me, at some point, it becomes this flow of communication. Yes. So um, being a reader is not enough, obviously, but she is a reader. And yes. so I have to, to start with, have to have a confidence that she will get it as a reader. Yes. And then from this, she will help me make decisions that will make it uh, get to the reader faster and, and better. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, we've never had any disagreements. As I, I mean, disagreements in the sense I said, maybe not this. Let's do this or not that. I mean, we discussed it, but yeah. I don't we have, we've never we've never fought. We never argued yeah. or anything. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we don't we don't talk. We don't fight. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's always it's always uh, the way I imagine this. You were talking about the process that you might be going through with her. I, 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 the word that came to my mind is a kind of a flow. Yes. Once I put the text into this flow with someone I trust and have worked with, then I can think about it, even if she's not sending me. Um, um, you know, suggestions as such. I, I sent a story and had an ending, 
I wasn't so sure about, and the only thing she said, I don't understand the ending. And I cut the thing, it was a thousand words, I just cut it. And then she said, I did not ask you to cut it <laughs> at all. I just, she just asked a question, and the question, I, I lopped it off yes. because of the question. It's, other things had preceded this, I mean, my decision-making process. But once we were in the communication, there was a flow, Yes, I could sort of not anticipate spe precisely, specifically how she would see it. But I had a reader I could trust. And if she had a question, then the question was, was big. Uh, a recent example of that same process was <laughs> I've, I've been known to be a little bit headstrong. And um, the end of the review wasn't really, it was a review, and it wasn't really working. But I wouldn't admit that. And, um, and Deborah said, I think this ending. And I said, oh, yes. And so then I just sent it back as basically missing one word from the shitty ending that I had put on it before. <laughs> and she's like, well, I think, and suggestions came. <clears throat> so we rewrote, rewrote it, and it was much better. And then I got an email when the piece came out from a very smart friend of mine saying, oh, I liked your piece so much, particularly the ending. <laughs> so um, she's never wrong. I wanted to ask you this, because one of your great strengths, and, and Sasha has pointed this out, is the is that you talk? You don't talk about process very much. Um, you see the work for what it is and what it can be. How, in your way of thinking, does the fact part of your job um, in that area differentiate from the fiction part? Yeah, it's quite different. Um, in some ways, I, I mean, I think when when you're editing nonfiction, sort of the 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 basic thing you have to worry about is information. Mm -hmm. And if all of the information is coming across, because you're trying to convey factual information, and sometimes it gets buried, it gets put in the wrong place, you didn't need to know it here, you don't know it until there. Um, so, so that's a first, sort of the first order of, of magnitude. And then the next order is you start to think about you know, the beauty of the piece. But mm -hmm. it, it, it can't be beautiful and not make sense. Um, on the, uh, on the fiction side, for me, the first thing to think about is the voice, mm -hmm. and and the beauty of the writing, and you know that the story itself will fall into place if those things are in place, mm -hmm. um, and if those things are consistent. So so it's a slightly you come at it from a slightly different angle. Mm -hmm. I mean, you work on both things. You work on information and fiction. You work on on beauty and nonfiction. But you you sort of start in a different place. I think. Mm -hmm. You when you worked. Um I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, but now that Sasha's been writing these beautiful nonfiction pieces, um, particularly the last one, uh, please read it, was about um, going back home, basically. How did, how did these pieces come about from a fiction writer, known as a fiction writer? Well, well that particular piece, um, uh, Sasha was doing a, a talk a year or two ago, and um, in the course of it, mentioned an anecdote about how he had gone back to Sarajevo after the siege of Sarajevo and after, after the war in Bosnia, after not having been there in a long time. And he had noticed himself walking down the street and turning his head to look at something, which was no longer there, but his body had remembered it being there. And it was such a great anecdote that I, I said, why not write a piece about that? So he did. And it, became <laughs> about, it became about many more things. Um, and it took a while to write it write it because I started writing it and then other things intervened. And, and normally I do not send drafts to Deborah or anyone for that matter. 
but uh, there was a point when I had written some of it, and I, I wasn't going to be able to work on it until you know two or three or how many months later, just to see if it was worth working on. And she, um, as I remember, she just said, "Keep working on it." There were no particular structural suggestions of any kind, um, and so I kept working on it. I think that. Again, I don't know how it works with other writers, but what, what the, the confidence that I have in Deborah's judgment is partly based on my belief that she knows how I think. Right. Um, it might be entirely delusional. <laughs> <laughs> but do not tell me now. <laughs> you just reminded me of um, a, a fiction writer whom I won't name, um, who I once sent. Yeah, we had a story by him, and I. I did a proof on it, which was very light. I mean, it was a few little things here and there, and I sent it off to him. And I, yeah, I hadn't worked with him before that point. And he called me up the next day, and he said, I, I'll, I'll give something away right now. He said, what I sent you was not a draft. <laughs> <laughs> it was a finished story. <laughs> so I said, oh, you don't like the suggestions? Well, let's, let's talk through them. We'll see which, if there's anything in there that maybe you like. <laughs> And then he, you know, managed to actually come down from his level of indignant yes. uh, response and actually take a few of the things. But uh, so yes, people don't don't always think of what they're sending in as a draft that's ready for, <laughs> for editing. Um. Uh, often, um, when writers send in drafts, whether well, writers like me, um, the thing that I'm hungriest for is a, is a conversation after I've been in my head for. X amount of months, or in the case of some profiles, a year, or a review. Um, and the conversation I've noticed with Deborah has a lot to do with um, making me less ashamed of, of putting myself out there. There's a great deal of shame that goes into writing, because as Joan Didion noted, um, there's so much evidence of being humiliated, which is to say published. And um, <laughs> I think that. Um, every writer's di psychology is very different. So anyway, the point is is that Deborah comes at it at a um, she wants to keep the family together in this way that's very beautiful. And that's my segue into tell me a little bit about your background because I know you come from a family of scientists and who are academics or academics who are scientists and um, you diverged from the family business, as it were. <laughs> yeah, well, my, um, in my family, my mother and my father and my stepfather and my sister and my brother and my cousins and my aunt and my uncle um, <laughs> were all, uh, or are all university professors. Um, so uh, in, in, in different fields, actually, not, not all straight science. And, and my mother, who ended up as a cognitive neuroscientist, did her undergraduate in French and Italian Renaissance literature. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, got a, a sort of um, fellowship to, to study whatever she wanted in a kind of uh, postgraduate setting. And she decided to switch to, to cognitive psychology. And they said, oh, dear, you don't want to do that. That's just rats and mazes. You know, wow. stay, stay with something nice and, and feminine, um, like Renaissance literature. Um, so. And she was like, OK, <laughs> yeah. I'll, do that. I'll do that little thing for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, the, the atmosphere. But my, the, my um, childhood was very 
I was very much immersed um, in literary things. And my father uh, was a huge reader and uh, also wrote poetry and, and so on. I mean, he was um, very versed in that. So I, and, and also when I, I moved countries twice, um, as a, you know, before I was nine, and um, you do that, it tends to throw you back on your own resources a lot. And so you withdraw, and if, if you're a child from a family of academics, you withdraw into books. Um, <laughs> And uh, you know, I was the youngest of four. My my the oldest, my sister, who you know grew up with my alone with my parents for a period of time. I think learned to read at 18 months and took books into her crib with her. You know, <laughs> instead of stuffed animals, she had books clutched to her. So uh, that was the example that was set at home. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, then I didn't want to become a university professor. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> just I I thought maybe I should do something different and. Um, but still wanted to be literary or work with literature. So this was the uh, the outlet I found. And mm. I'm, I'm sort of the black sheep. They, they look at me and say, well, you deal with paying people and <laughs> contracts and <laughs> mysterious world. Um, I think for the, for the young people in the audience, um, can you give us a little bit about the building of your career once you decided that you would edit? Um, you had graduated from Berkeley, but you were already working for um, it's it's uh, building is building a career is a polite um, term for sort of just being lucky and and um, ending up in the right place at the right time. Um, it's it's very difficult to build a career in publishing or in editing um, right. because there are so few great jobs out there and you have to kind of finagle your way into them. Um, I was at Berkeley and uh, met Wendy Lesser, who was the edit still is the editor of the Three Penny Review, and happened at that moment to be to have decided that she needed an assistant, which she had never had before. So I had some great um, months sitting in Wendy's former apartment, which had become her office. She taught me how to um, use a sponge to seal six or seven envelopes at the same time when sending out direct mail. So now I can I can I'm very good at sealing envelopes. Um, and uh, I, I learned other things, uh, you know, because she had no one else. I was reading a lot of manuscripts and sort of assessing them and sort of witnessing editing firsthand, which um, you get to do more rarely in a, in a bigger company. Um, from there, I applied for an internship at Harper's, which had, still has a great um, internship program. It's very intensive. You work for four or five months uh, full time for nothing. And um, <laughs> at the end of it, you, you maybe come out with some referrals to uh, other places. But you've learned a lot about magazines and, and how they work. And um, my, my great um, triumph there was that I actually pulled a story out of the, the slush pile of unsolicited manuscripts that went in the magazine. So I, I, that, that was sort of unheard of. So I felt very proud of that. Um, and I went from there. I ended up, I freelanced for a while. I ended up at the New York Review of Books briefly and then was hired away at 23 to run a magazine called Grand Street, which is where I met you, and um, which doesn't exist anymore, but was a literary quarterly, which was um, uh, sort of dealt with, had fiction, poetry, also art, um, and definitely had a mandate to be somewhat uh, on the more experimental side. And uh, we did a lot of literature and translation. But I was, it was small enough that I, I think no one realized how uh, foolhardy it was to put the entire magazine in the hands of a 23-year-old. Um, and I got to 
also, I didn't have any, you know, the, I think there have been two or three people in the previous year. So no one had had a chance to really build up a great example of doing a good job. So I, um, I didn't have to improve on someone who was hard to improve on. I just got to learn on the job and deal with printing presses and deal with designers and all of these things that I hadn't done before. And at the same time, everything that went into the magazine went, uh, went through my computer. Um, so I took a great, great amount of pride in that. And then after, after four years there, I felt you know maybe it was time for a bigger audience. Um, and uh, I, I um, at your instigation, called up then fiction editor Bill Buford and said, hey, how about a job? And he said, well, we don't have anything, but how about lunch? And um, so we had lunch. And then, it, then it, was just, it took a very long time. Um, but eventually, he, he sort of created a position for me which hadn't existed before. And, uh, and I was hired on. And then five years later, he uh, left editing and, and switched over to writing. And uh, I got his job. So that's that's the full course of my career, <laughs> and there's a lot of just serendipity in there. Mm -hmm. And the the wonderful thing about writing writing and editing, of course, is that so much of it is chance. When you say that you found a story that they published in Harper's um, in the slush pile, mm -hmm. um, that's chance. But you also have to have the eye mm -hmm. to know what the institution is and how the fiction or the fact can actually sort of serve itself and the institution simultaneously, which is one of the points that I wanted to get to, um, which is that the editing process that I've seen with you and other people at The New Yorker is not only dealing with this tremendous um, flow, to use your word, or influx of words and, and ideas and writers, but you also have to deal with the institution as it exists and what that institutional voice is and what that institution doesn't do, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So when you have people like Sasha Heyman or David Foster Wallace who have incredibly strong voices, um, you know it at once. And then you have to basically translate it to people who had never heard them before. Um, how did you and Sasha come together as writer and editor? Um. That was, uh, I was in my early days at The New Yorker, I think it was 98? 99. 99. And um, Sasha, I think, had, well, you can tell that part of the story, had only, had, had relatively recently started writing in English, and um, I think had published a story in Plowshares. Yeah. And uh, signed up with a, an absolutely fantastic agent called Nicole Araji, who, um, sent me a very long piece that Sasha had written. I think it was 40 or 50 pages. Um, 25,000 words. Yeah, it was, it was long. But they were all short. <laughs> <laughs> no, there were some very long words in there, um, some of which you'd made up. Um, it was very disconcerting. Um, so, <laughs> and I, I love this piece. And obviously, it was you know, much too long to be published in the magazine. And, um, but I. I thought I could make something from it work. So I ended up compressing and cutting and, and um, working out a story that was maybe 8,000 words or something in the end from, from that longer manuscript. And uh, Sasha didn't say no. And um, that was that. Yeah, but it was more difficult than that because <laughs> <laughs> no. But even the compressing, I accepted it because you know I, I understood that 25,000 
story word by you know a new writer who would not be published in New York or anywhere for that matter. But I thought you know, it'll get me to a book, and will be in the book. I'll have the full you know the full range of my talent will be in the book. <laughs> but there were other things, and I remember I remember being upset. I was generally angry at the time, and uh, and then it the process was not clear to me, but it seemed to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that. I didn't. I only talked to you, but they were. Bill Buford was sending in his suggestions, some of which I found objectionable, and then I would sort of yell at you <laughs> over the phone. <laughs> I was used to it. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the way the um, the, the way the, set, the New Yorker has a fiction department. It's not. It's not just me. There are um, now um, two other people who edit fiction and an assistant and so on. And um, when I was the deputy fiction editor. Um, Bill was above me and would, you know, weigh in on on anything we were publishing. And now I do the same thing to the at other editors in the department. Um, probably people yell at them for the proofs I do on their stories. But um, but there's there's a give and take there. Yeah, I remember you not being so crazy about his suggestions, but you were very good about mine. I was, <laughs> but I think if that's important. I was thinking about it when I was thinking about this conversation because. It is out of this a conflictual situation, relatively speaking, um, that you know we established a sort of a foundation for our relationship. I, I like to think that I know what I'm doing when I write. Things don't just come out, and then they're there. I I tend to be able to explain to myself and others if they care why the word is here, why the you know why things are like this in, in the story. And early on, it was yeah. difficult. It seemed to me, at least I was sensitive to that. I was, I was sensitive to the possibility that people would not know, that they would think that I did not know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I was much too vain to accept that. And so um, after this arguing, and I was, I was never really, I was yelling at the imaginary enemy behind, <laughs> behind Oz, Deborah's Oz. back. Oz. <laughs> <laughs> so I was never mad at Deborah as such. Um, but in this conversation, there was sort of, we earned each other's respect. Mm -hmm. At least she earned mine. <laughs> I feel that I want to earn hers continually <laughs> because um, I, <laughs> I've been known uh, to, to have a sharp word for authority, generally. And, um, and Deborah doesn't let me um, sabotage myself by being uh, stupid about the possibilities of what I can do as a writer. Um, I think, as, as Sasha's pointed out, it's, it's, I think what it is, Sasha, is that someone is not saying no, right? That this person that you're going to is not, the re first response is not no. And so when you talk to Deborah uh, via email mostly, and sometimes on the telephone, um, it's the welcoming aspect of it that makes you want to do your best, even though um, you can be exhausted and hysterical. She will make you sit down and write that other 500 words or 1,000 words because she's not, she's not saying no. She's saying, if you do this, the world is yours for the week that it's out or the two weeks or whatever. And, and you do feel that. I just. But I'm, I'm glad that you said that um, about initial resistance, um, because no writer, no thinker really likes to sort of be reshaped from what they're thinking or writing is. So I'm glad that she was able to see it immediately in you. Um, oh my. And I wanted to ask you about your, your writing and 
the other half of the story Deborah said you yeah, can tell yourself. Well, it's a longer story, but I'll, I'll edit it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll You've tell you to stop. Yeah. <laughs> I was born in Sarajevo in 64, many, many years ago, and then um, was working as a young journalist and was writing some fiction and even poetry. But I, was, I wasn't even earning a living. I was just working as a journalist. But then there was a, uh, I was invited to come to the United States for a visit in 92 as a young journalist and went around under the auspices of the United States Information Agency, no longer in existence. And this was, um, and then went to see a friend in Canada and then came to see a friend in Chicago. And then the war in Bosnia broke out. So I had to decide whether to go back, which would have been logistically difficult apart from all the other things. And uh, I decided to stay in Chicago, and so I live in Chicago still. But then I had to decide what to do with my writing. I had serious writing ambition in that I, that's what I thought I was doing, that's what I was. I had no other training or had no interest in anything else. And I decided to um, switch the languages. I had been able to speak English. I had been taking courses you know, in various schools and was listening to rock and roll and the movies were not dubbed. So I was adept. I mean, I could communicate when I went on this tour. I could talk. I was, there were no articles in my sentences. And I could, <laughs> I could shape things that I didn't know the name for, you know, that thing. <laughs> uh, but it's an entirely different kind of language that you need when you, when you want to write. Um, and I like to use a lot of words. And so it took me about three years to convert um, my writing part of the brain into English. And, um, and then I started writing stories in English. Can I ask you to jump in for a second when you say convert in, over that three-year period? What do you, can you just be a little more specific? Well, I... Because the war was on in Bosnia, I felt that I was cut off from my native language and I could not write in it. Um, and then I realized that since I would have to live in the United States, as I made the decision to stay on, I would have to write in English. Because mm -hmm. I don't think that language is so metaphysically embedded. I mean, it's, it's a matter of daily practice. Mm -hmm. You write in the language you live in. That's my position. So. I was reading a lot and making lists of words and rereading things that I had read in translation or even the original language and I'm making notes. And then I was, I gave myself a five year, it was an arbitrary deadline. Um, I gave myself five years to, um, to be able to write a publishable story in English. Mm -hmm. But for one reason or another, I got desperate enough after three years <laughs> and I wrote a story in English. Um, and it, which was published in Triquarterly, a Northwestern University um, literary magazine. And then wrote a, a, a few stories, one of which was the one that reached Deborah and assembled a book out of it, which is The Question of Bruno. Um, at, at some point in the mid-90s, I went back to writing in my native language and started writing a column in Bosnia, which I then wrote for 15 years or so. Left, stopped writing it last. Summer, for some reason. What was the column? Was it about your life here? Or? It was about, they do not edit there. Yeah. <laughs> if I had sent them my grocery list, they would have published it probably. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I don't need much um, proofreading. So I, you know, here and there, if, if the proofreader was available, they would proofread it. Otherwise, they published it. But um, it was just about, and a lot of it was about my life here, or the life of displaced Bosnians, and there are a lot of them. A lot of it was complaining about the Bush administration 
and before that by the Clinton administration. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, a lot of it was common past. The thing with Bosnian experience is that there's a, you know, a vast diaspora now, proportionally speaking. And so in new generations who grew up in entirely different circumstances, historical circumstances, so that the common past becomes um, something that needs to be narrated to be available, in a sense, mm -hmm. um, personally and then also, I suppose, collectively. And so I, I spend a lot of words mm -hmm. remembering certain things that I thought would be important to remember. How hard is it to switch between languages? Well, when now, I mean, now, now there's no, uh, the, I, I, I do not notice. What I learned in the 90s when I was converting, um, and I mean, I can say it now, I was not aware of it then. I was just reading and trying to find enough language. Is that your subconscious mind or my subconscious mind has to be, um, the language has to be in your subconscious mind, mm -hmm. whatever the language you're writing in. Mm -hmm. English was external to my subconscious mind for mm -hmm. obvious reasons. I was not living in it prior to my arrival. Mm -hmm. um, but then in the 90s, the early 90s, for various reasons, it got in mm -hmm. and still there. And in fact, I remember then um, finding it strange that I was, I would notice that I was dreaming in English. That is, in my dream, mm -hmm. I would notice people speak English. Mm -hmm. And in more bizarrely, I remember remembering in English. Mm -hmm. That is, I remember conversations with my par uh, parents and friends in Sarajevo mm -hmm. that they, they would be conducted in my head in English. And of course, knowing all along that they would not mm -hmm. have been conducted that's, in English. That's amazing. Do you know, you know that story of, um, Saul Bellow, and he was in Paris, and um, he didn't know how to start the Adventures of Augie March. He didn't know how to find his American, his Yiddish-American voice until he lived in a country where he didn't speak the language at all. And he was crossing a, um, a street, and he saw a puddle, and he, re he remembered the word for puddle um, in Yiddish, and somehow the character's voice came to him then. Did you feel when you started to make those lists of words and to really sort of dig into the concrete of your past and, um, and build out of it, build your future out of it, did you have a, a great sense of excitement about this new language or, or did it feel too well, hard? I mean, I'm not prone to excitement. Okay. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm prone to the wrong kind. I'm, I'm prone to con constant states of delirium. So I'm just projecting. Ah, you don't want me excited. <laughs> yeah. No, but excitement is not the word. I was doing it out of despair. And mm. so, and despair is a great ally in that it sort of reduces your choices to one or two things. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't have to you know, deliberate, should I do this? What's better for me? It was only one thing to do, or two things maybe, and I, that's what the things that I did. Mm -hmm. But there was excitement, a readily excitement, because it's a beautiful language. Suddenly all these things were becoming available. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I still find great joy in simply using words. I mean, mm -hmm. this is what writers do. Even when talking, I like to, to chew on the word. It, mm -hmm. it gives me pleasure. And so, I, you know, one of the things I was reading a lot and writing a lot of words was Lolita. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's true of a language. And so I would make these long lists and I would learn these words and then I would use them. And there was this sense of, con not conquering, that sounds so aggressive and ambitious, but rather an acquiring is, is too, um, you know, psychological. But 
gathering, collecting things. It was, there was, I was on an expedition, as it were, for survival, and then I was collecting these beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And language doesn't go away once it's in your subconscious mind. I do not forget words anymore. I mean, that might be coming up, but <laughs> um, I have them. And then, you know, I have very little property, but my property is this language that I acquired. It was unplanned, and it not quite, didn't quite fall into my lap, but here I have it now. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful, and I did not lose the previous language. So I had two languages. So there was that, it wasn't excitement in the sense that, you know, well, I'm going to get this down, I'm going to do great things. It was the excitement of waking up in the morning and there's, it was, my life was rather bleak. And then you would have, you know, one or two Nabokovian words to hold on to. I have to say that was, that was also what was remarkable in that first story that I got from Sasha and every other story since was, was he sent me to my dictionary more than any other writer. Mm -hmm. um, since Nabokov, <laughs> probably, uh, and you know, to know that this was written by by a non-native speaker who had this vocabulary and and the ability not only to use words correctly that that he had learned, but also to to improvise with them and to use them in ways that native speakers wouldn't think to do. And I I, I remember very clearly. There's one story, um, Smurra's room, where uh, he described a someone who's sort of curling up. Now, any, any native speaker would probably say curling up in a fetal position mm -hmm. in a corner, and he said, you know, he was shrimping. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and instantly you see this shrimp curled up in the corner, and, and instead of using the obvious thing, he made, you see it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, no one else would say shrimping. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you go to the dictionary, shrimping means fishing for shrimp. So it, it wasn't the actual meaning, but he, it was his ability to not only learn the vocabulary, but then to abuse it. Mm -hmm. Um, for his own purposes, which was so And amazing. also to be free in yeah. that. Um, yeah. Because one of the things that you're looking for always is how expansive can a writer be and how, you know, to invest, to invest in them is to invest in allowing for their expansion um, as a writer. And Sasha, how, how, how have you seen your work develop over the years? Or should Deborah answer that? Well, Deborah can answer. I, I don't. Uh, <laughs> development implies kind of a progress, or that I have a plan. It's, no, no, no. To me, the, most of my life is you know running from one shelter to another, just trying to stay alive. Yeah. And so, um, and in fact, I, I, I'm experienced enough and old enough to take that as part of a creative process. In that, I often find myself in the middle of a story, or before writing a story or a novel, thinking, "I lost it. I can't do this anymore. I don't know what I'm doing." And then, in fact, I, it used to scare me, but now it means that I'm ready for the next thing. That is, that all the, th the, all the, all the vanity that I've accumulated um, you know, is cleared. So I don't have to repeat things that I've done that I'm proud of and people have praised me for to make myself feel better. But there's this um, not knowing what to do. It means that I will have to learn how to do it. And that's exciting to me. And then, ideally, to um, result in some sort of exciting, exciting work. But it's also, I think, in, in relation to the language that we're, or, and what we were saying about language, to me, it ha always has to be new. I'm more comfortable in it now than I was 20 years ago, obviously. But at the same time, um, it is not just a thing. It's not like furniture that you're used to sitting on in your living room. It has to be new. And, and how to renew that interesting language um, for yourself, it's a, it's a tricky thing. But I, I grew up, and even before I started writing in English, 
I, I um, believe that what writers do is they renew language mm -hmm. in the act of writing. That, um, and so and people are, in relation to that, people often ask me whether I write the way I write in English in my native language, or whether I use English mm -hmm. the way I do because I'm not a native speaker. And I might be the wrong person to you know, talk about this, but it seems to me in my native language I have the exact same strategy. I mean, I look for those words and those little twists to make things um, and, and locutions be strange again. So because we get used to the language, it's constantly produced. Right. There's, a, there's a, an ocean of cliches everywhere. That's right. And so to, to make it exciting, it's, 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 it requires some work. I, my ex-wife was reading my work first. Um, in the 90s and early 2000s. And so she, would, she was a native speaker, and so she would read something that I wrote, and she would say, we don't say this. And I would say, well, now we do. <laughs> <laughs> she was also an English teacher, right? But, <laughs> but well, the point being, not that I'm arrogant, I'm going to fix the, your language, but rather than Unless I feel it's mine, I can't. I can't do it. When you make when you make um, language new, which is something that you do in, deeply in your work, um, I often, when I'm reading a short story of yours, I'll read aloud, um, just so that I can hear the locution. Have you ever thought of writing a play? No. Um, well, I've, I've thought of it, but the th if, if it's interesting to me, I want it to be a story. I, I, I've been a film buff my whole life, and so you know, periodically I have this ambition to write a script. Mm -hmm. But it, I, I would, I'm, and I have been writing a script with a friend of mine in Bosnia, mm -hmm. but I would, would have never done it on my own because if it's a story worth telling, it ends up being a story mm -hmm. because I need the language, the structure. It was, it's fun writing a script, but it, you know, all the poetry is removed, all yes. the... No shrimping in the, <laughs> in, the, in the script. So I can do it on the side. Mm -hmm. um, but n not really. I, I, it would be fun to do it with someone So as a collaborative project. Yes. What interests me about film and then uh, theater, similarly, is that it would be a collaboration. Right. Um, I would do it for the reason of collaboration rather than any other reason. Because when I think of your stories, I think, um, not to embarrass you, but I think of Chekhov's career, where he, the form wasn't very natural to him at first, um, writing for the theater. But in that, he was able to, to find a certain freedom and the collaboration. In fact, his wife was an actress who appeared in um, some of his work. But I think that, um, I don't want to jinx it, but maybe one day I'll be able to come and see your play as well. Um, Maybe you should talk about writing fact and fiction because oh. you've been doing both. Oh. How are they different Expose. for you? <laughs> um, it's horrible. I'm leaving this theater immediately. Um, I'm taking the shame out of it. Thank remember? you. Thank you very much. I'm very touched by that. Um, um, the thing that I like so much about fiction is that I don't have to look anything up. Um, um, I'm, I'm sort of a nut when it comes to research, and I really love it. Um, and the, the thing that I love, in a, I've been working on a long project, and I stopped to write a story um, that came as a phrase, really. And the phrase was, um, um, I haven't shown it to you yet, but it's called um, 
I think I know he's crazy because he loves me. And then I thought, oh, why don't we just say, I think I know he's crazy when he, and so then the story became the when he part. Um, the characters were able to communicate <clears throat> because they were freed by a sentence that I chopped in half. Uh, so the fiction part of it for me is feeling the freedom and also being able to write about experiences without having to call in real life experiences. Um, I like metaphor and I also like not knowing what's going to happen. Um, some writers can write the ending of a story, well actually, I never know how it's going to happen in nonfiction either, but um, <laughs> even if I've had the experience, the great thing about writing in general, fact and fiction for me is that um, I don't know how it's going to turn out and I don't know what my feelings will be. I'm not, um, for all of the research, I'm not a, uh, an intellectually inclined writer. It has to be an emotional response first and then thinking follows for me. So in writing fiction, um, the things that I've written so far have always been an emotional response to um, an event uh, or a memory. And in nonfiction, weirdly, with profiles and, and uh, long critical pieces, it's someone that I want to connect with um, and understand, even if I don't particularly admire them, I feel a deep need to connect to um, their experience. Um, you know, when we've worked on people like Richard Pryor or um, well, it's something that you pointed out once when I was being edited by someone else for a while, and she was at a loss about a particular piece that I was doing, and, and you came into the office after she had asked you to read it, and you said Hilton is really interested in people who are kind of like in the margins of things. So if you can find the marginality of this person, that's the power for him. And so. I have very, very little interest, for instance, in rich people, except when they take me to dinner. No, just, you know, <laughs> um, I have very, very little interest in overt signs of wealth or power. I'm interested in the internal life and also how does someone survive not being um, in the status quo. So as you know, the experience of even writing about someone who was as famous as Jane Fonda, the, what was really interesting to me was how feminism had, um, you know, dissipated as a sort of cultural force, and how she was still supporting a, a women's center where they met, and um, and how had her life. I don't even know how that woman gets out of bed, given who, what she comes from, but she was still able to find, as she said. Um, love on the horizon, mostly with older women, um, women who her mother committed suicide. So she was always drawn to older women who could tell her things, say, Jane, don't do that. And, and um, that's not the way to respond to things. So I feel emotionally connected to people first. Um, and that's where the ideas come, the ideas follow. It's always the emotional connection for me first.